She is a media personality in the Boston market with a degree in bioanthropology from Cal Berkeley. She hosts Blunt Talk, a podcast on iHeartRadio and works full-time for WBZ News Radio as a writer. She is Britt Smith, and she is on In the Weeds with Jimmy Young next. Don't look now, but it's a whole new world of weed out there. Pot is flower, it's Bruce Banner and Blue Dream. You've got bongs and dabs, resin and shatter, vaping and edibles, new terms, new strains, and new ways to use cannabis sativa, the plant. Some just made with CBD, and hemp has minimal THC. There's sativa and indica strains, and 100 chemicals, all legal in 10 states for adult use. There's a lot to get to know. Get used to it, folks, because it's legal in the Bay State and it's not going away. Neither is In the Weeds with Jimmy Young next. Revolutionary Clinics is just one of 49 medical cannabis dispensaries in Massachusetts, but there's a reason why it's one of the most popular. It's their patient-first philosophy. All day long, they teach, they educate, they communicate about this complicated plant called Cannabis Sativa. That's true. Whether you visit their Cambridge location in Fresh Pond at 110 Fawcett Street or at 67 Broadway in Somerville. Revolutionary Clinics, where the patient comes first. Now, Britt, how many times have you heard someone walk up to you or come on your show and say, you know, cannabis saved my life? Oh, yeah. Most people. It's pretty amazing, show. isn't it? Yeah. Most people have a story that, that tells me it's either saved them or someone they love. That's right. Yeah. And, and they have recognized it. Again, this is why medicinally it's been, quote unquote, easier to be accepted in our community. Mm. You mentioned all the science and research. You mentioned Israel as one of the countries that is at the forefront of research of this. But I also cringe a little bit when I hear, oh, we have to, we have to legalize it. We can study it more. Now, I know for a fact that there have been thousands, like 29,000 studies on cannabis by the substance abuse community in this country because they were looking for the effects on humans. They were looking for the harms. Yes. They were commissioned to look for harm. Yes. So Only 4%, by the way. Right. And do you know how many studies have been done on opioids that I found out? I don't. Under 1,000. Really? Now, think about that for wow. a second. Here, And again, it has to do with the fact that it's been around a long time and the substance abuse community is always looking to find out what's good for us, what's not good for us, whatever. Um, I don't know if you saw the recent study about Colorado and the decline of cannabis use by youth. You I know, did, yeah. You know, isn't that cool? Yeah. And by the way, that does not surprise me because when you educate children mm -hmm. about adult products, okay, they're going to learn, hopefully from those adults, that there are adult products that you can use responsibly in moderation. Yeah. And But moderation is not something that young people... Um, that's not a word that they're comfortable <laughs> with because after all, mom and dad out there are putting these boundaries on them. Right. And your job as a child is to... To break those down. Push those boundaries, right? Yeah. Just push them out there because mom told me I shouldn't touch that stove that's yeah. hot. But I want to I want to experience what hot really is. <laughs> Psh, ooh, that's hot. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. And, and so I'm... I'm actually encouraged by that study because one of the first rejections, one of the first walls that goes up 
with anybody having to do with the cannabis community is, what about the kids? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I've worked with kids my whole life. I love kids. I have a kid, in fact. Okay. Yeah. Now, he's bigger than me and he's 28 <laughs> and I'm very proud of him. That being said, um, he learned about cannabis growing up. Right. And now he doesn't use it. He doesn't like it. And by the way, that's okay, too. I think education is such a key component to not only reducing youth use, <clears throat> but, uh, but making sure that adults that do use it, use it properly, store it safely, keep it out of reach of young kids. But there's also this component when, when teenagers are exposed to education about something, they might be more open to trying it once. And then because it's no longer a taboo thing that they're not supposed to do, they can kind of just let it lie. Right. When I was a teenager, it was all about uh, being able to drink beer and wine at home. This is just one of the things that we can do in Europe. We right. sit around at dinner and we have small glasses of wine and beer. We have a shandy when I was 12 years old. And when I grew up, the substance that I turned to was not alcohol because that was always available to me if I wanted it. I understood how to use it properly and not how to overdo it. But any other drug that I was told not to do, that was the one that I wanted to do more. I wanted to try cocaine. I wanted to, you know, and, and these were just the things that I was not allowed to do. And so I, I agree. I think it's probably happening in Colorado because there's more education there. They right. actually have an education program just for teenagers that they're trying to put out into high schools there as well. Yeah, that's great. And this this is what I preach all the time is responsible use of the product. Talk about it with your children. You know, adults... Have no problem getting a beer after work. Have no problem getting open up a glass of wine. Sure. Uh, in Europe, you just put out that perfect example of why there's less alcoholism yeah. in Europe. And by the way, they do know how to drink in Europe. Oh, yeah. Okay? Oh, so yeah. It, it isn't that. Okay? <laughs> yeah. It is the fact that you have, you're educated. It's part of your upbringing. Yes. And you learn about it at a young age. This, now, American parents have an opportunity to not only teach about cannabis, but about caffeine, yeah. but about alcohol and the different types of alcohol. And one of the things that bugs me more than anything else about teenagers, and I continue to preach about it, they drink to get drunk. Oh, absolutely. They binge drink. And that is extremely dangerous. It just doesn't make any sense. And you want to, you know, all those people who are worried about the brain cells of kids with cannabis, yeah. they're killing more brain cells by pushing themselves over the limits, over their own limits with alcohol. I'll tell you, when I first moved here, I was 19 and I mm-hmm. went to Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Oh, my goodness. That was a rude <laughs> awakening. <laughs> yeah. And the, the way that they would drink there is unlike anything I'd ever seen before. It was absolutely to get blackout drunk. That was the goal of going out in the evenings. Mm-hmm. Where I'd come from, it was more like we have a beer on a Sunday afternoon while we watch the football. And it was much more of a social, relaxing kind of event. I think it's really about not necessarily the culture that you live in on whole, but like the, the, the microculture of the family, right. how you're brought up to treat that substance. It's an adult use substance mm-hmm. that can be used medicinally. Mm-hmm. By the way, alcohol has some elements to that as well. In different ways, but you know, a lot of let's not get into that as much as <laughs> accept it, educate yourself, don't be afraid of the subject anymore. You know, that's perhaps one of those little things that um, is is happening around this country with the green wave in Washington D.C. And we'll, we'll get to that. That's on my notes here to talk about. But the first rejection of people, I don't want to touch that stuff because it's illegal, is mm-hmm. now being broken down. Yeah. That was the first big thing, right? Now, 
I grew up in the 60s and 70s in this in this country. You talk about barriers, right? Oh, I bet. And the counterculture. And, you know, I wanted to be like older brothers, my older brother. And I wanted to... Now, he was extremely straight. I was not. But that being said, I wanted to push the envelope. Yeah. I wanted to see what it was like, you know? Because every time I had a beer or two, I would get sick. Later in life, I find out... I'm allergic to hops. Ah, uh, that's it. Right? Yeah. So, but you don't know that in 1974. Yeah. You're experimenting. And by the way, the age, drinking age was 18. Oh, right. When I was 18. I moved into Tufts University on my 18th birthday. Oh, that's Drinking terrible. age was 18. <laughs> when I graduated, the drinking age went up to 21. Oh. When I was 21. Thank you very much. <laughs> I live under a great star. Anyway, um, let's talk about the social equity programs and what's going on in Cambridge right now. Because okay. there is a civil war. Yes. going on in Cambridge. And, it, and the, one of the neat things about this, and I know you get it too, it's democracy, it's capitalism, yeah. it's politics, it's chemistry, it's science, yeah. it's everything right. that we touch. And in Cambridge, you've got what the medical dispensaries thought was a friendly city council. Sure. And they operate... You know, they've operated pretty successfully, Rev Clinic, Sira Naturals, and I think the other one's Healthy Farms, and yep. I can't quite figure out if they're open or closed or are they waiting for to get an adult license. I'm not sure what's going on. As with far as I know, they're open medically. Medically? Yes. Okay. Um, and that's the whole point. All three of those know they can go to the head of the line right. to get approved for adult use rec, and that's where the, if I can say it, the real money is, Yeah. and we're already seeing $1 million a day in sales of cannabis by adult-use dispensaries every day in our state. Yeah, they want a piece of that pie. Why? And by the way, of course. isn't that capitalism? Last that's, time I checked. That's the business they're in. That's right. You know? and, and it's a reason why they went through all the rigmarole just to get a medical license so they could open up. Yes, it's being run by big money that's coming in as investment. That is also part of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Now let's enter into the social equity world. We both recognize that uh, persons of color who have been uh, abused by the uh, war on drugs, and by the way, it's still happening, um, they they deserve uh, the right to get their records expunged. They deserve the right to have an opportunity to get into this business. And Stephen Hoffman, the commissioner, told me he'd like to see more social equity programs coming from the private sector, Mm. medical dispensaries. So what happens in Cambridge? You probably are pretty well aware of what's going on. I'll let you pick up the story yeah. of the, uh, the ban, uh, or at least the suggest- suggested ban. So the contention here is that the medical dispensaries want to be first in line and mm-hmm. have been told so far that they will be first in line to get the rec licenses for mm-hmm. that town. Mm-hmm. But the economic empowerment applicants see that as big money coming in and really getting a foot in the door before they would even get a chance to set up shop. Right. Now, setting up shop is a million, sometimes multi-million dollar endeavor, which Correct. a lot of people <clears throat> in social equity <clears throat> circles, they mm-hmm. don't have access to that funding. Mm-hmm. And so there's a massive barrier for them there. So what the medical dispensaries proposed was that they would put together kind of slush fund right. to help out economic empowerment applicants. A $5 million yeah. slush fund, I, mean, I it's might nothing, add. It's nothing to it ain't at, you chicken know, scratch. It's good money. Right. But that being said, that would also allow the medical dispensaries to go ahead and open up rec alongside them. 
So if you think about where people usually go to buy their products in mm -hmm. general, you know, sometimes they'll go to local smaller mm -hmm. providers, mm -hmm. um, somebody who's kind of a craft salesman. And you still have that choice in do, a free society. You have yes. that choice, yep. absolutely. Yep. But most people will get comfortable with the big bucks. You know, they'll, mm -hmm. they'll want to go into like the, the chain names that they know. Mm -hmm. um, somebody that's going to give them consistently the same product every single week. Mm -hmm. And that often isn't the case with smaller craft businesses. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of back and forth between how you figure out to allow the social economic, economic empowerment applicants to get a bit of a head start mm -hmm. when there's already three massive companies who technically have that head start down. And as you know, I have a background in sports. Sure. So everything is an analogy with sports. Yeah. <laughs> in sports, they call them developmental leagues, uh -huh. minor leagues. Right, right. This and, and to be honest, that's how I envisioned that $5 million slush fund was to create a training program mm. for those social equity applicants who, by the way, it'll probably take them two years just to go through the system anyway to get their licenses and to find the host agreements and to find the locations and deal with the realtors. These are all little, oh, yeah. little barriers to entry, as Absolutely. they say. Yep. So my point being, creating a developmental league of employees for the existing medical community as they um, meander over to the adult use side, mm -hmm. it makes sense to me. I mean, it, let they should be employees of the medical dispensaries on the rec side. So they're actually getting hands-on training by those who have been doing it the most. I think the problem with asking somebody to be an employee when they're trying to be a CEO is <laughs> that they don't get long-term wealth from that opportunity and oftentimes they'll train. get comfortable in that I, opportunity and they won't then seek out the CEO stuff. But it, uh, but again, that's your right as a human being to decide how much you want to get into it. That's and, true. And it, right? Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to look at is the big picture, okay, in that these, um, the social equity applicants need experience, they need money, they're, you know, and why not learn from those who have been in the business over the last few years in that same community. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, and again, what do we talk about? Education. Everybody needs to get educated, not just about the product, but how to run the business with the regulations. And there's tons of regulations, by the way, in adult use rec. But is the only way that they can learn about how to run that business through being employed by another business? Is there not a program that might be set up for that? Okay, so let, that's education and learning. And I believe in experiential learning. I believe in vocational learning. Okay. I believe in learning the trade. How do you learn to edit video? How do you learn to write for the spoken word, Britt? Yeah, it's an by internship. By doing it, right? right? right. But yeah. Through an internship, yeah. practical experience, sure. hireable skills. By the way... This is all missing from our educational system. Not everywhere, but it, I don't mean to go off on my education <laughs> rant, but I, I can and I do it all the time on the show. <laughs> anyway, um, if you were sitting in the city council's chair, um, and again, this is Britt Smith's opinion. This is no reflection on any of her employers. We run a disclaimer at the end of the show. Um, how would you handle this? That's a very deep question. I know. Um, I I, once in a while, I get one. There's a lot more public hearings that should go on. Um, a, a big 
portion of this is that there were so many advocates for the medical side that were actually employees of medical dispensaries mm -hmm. who turned up with a T-shirt that said patient on it. And so that's I think the I, politics. I, I understand okay. that this is a very big visual. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the issue here <clears throat> being that you're hearing a lot more from the medical side and, and the side that is already established as a business mm -hmm. and not so much from the side that wants to enter the industry and has ideas about how it would be best for them to be helped through entering the industry. Right. So I think that, you know, Past hearing more from the people that need the, the help up, yep. um, I don't think the slush fund is a bad idea. I think it's a good place to start. And I will also say that those medical dispensaries do work a lot with social equity applicants. Mm -hmm. They, uh, for Sierra Naturals, for example, they run um, a pilot program a, that yeah, they're doing. They have some sort of program yep. where they actually uh, help economic empowerment applicants uh, start a business up and they use their kitchen to work right. out their recipes. And, you know, there are different ways that they can help empower these people that doesn't have to be through employment. I yeah. don't think we've quite figured out how yet. There's a lot of twists and turns to the story, but uh, I, I would definitely like to see local people have an equal and fair opportunity at, at getting in this industry. Right. And again, this is Stephen Hoffman, the commissioner, and I sat down with him uh, about a week before NECAN in March, and he said it should come from the private sector. And here, the you know, the private sector is getting a lot of abuse because a lot of them are coming from out of state. They're, yeah. they're in, you know, dispensaries in other states. I mean, certainly if you're looking at all these applicants and you see an applicant that has a track record, a positive track record from another state, and you're on the state commission, you'd more apt to give them an opportunity to have a license in your state. You know, Maine tried to do it with residents only. Yes. And they immediately got threatened with a lawsuit. Oh. Yes, they did. Acreage mm. Holdings, I think, was the one that, that went surprised. after them. Not surprised. I'm not but, surprised. But again, no. this is this is the part of this historic rollout that there already is so much money invested in this industry, mm -hmm. and they're already controlling a lot of the industry. So again, it's not easy to slow that train no, down. No, it is not. Especially right. It, exactly right. But um, anyway, it is what it is. <laughs> Revolutionary Clinics is just one of 49 medical cannabis dispensaries in Massachusetts, but there's a reason why it's one of the most popular. It's their patient-first philosophy. All day long, they teach, they educate, they communicate about this complicated plant called Cannabis Sativa. That's true. Whether you visit their Cambridge location in Fresh Pond at 110 Fawcett Street or at 67 Broadway in Somerville. Revolutionary Clinics, where the patient comes first. This podcast is produced by the Pro Cannabis Media Group out of Boston, Massachusetts for the enjoyment and education of our audience. Any medical advice or opinions shared are not a reflection of the Pro Cannabis Media Management or any of the In the Weeds distributors, including CLNS Media and C-Suite Network.